Welcome, I am Malihe Razazan and this is Status. On this edition of Status, we bring you an interview UC Berkeley Professor Samara Smear conducted with Professor Helga Tawil Suri of NYU, who is the editor of the new book Gaza as a Metaphor. They will be joined by two of the book's contributors, UC Santa Barbara historian Shirin Sekali and clinical psychologist Dr. Saeed Shahade. Gaza as a Metaphor explores the contribution of Gaza to our understanding of exception, inequality, dispossession, and biopolitics. If Gaza is a metaphor for faraway humanitarian disaster or a location of incomprehensible violence, it is above all an inseparable part of Palestine's past, present, and future, and of the condition of dispossession. Stay with us. Gaza as a Metaphor is a new book published by Hearst and released in the U.S. last month. It is an impressive and a much-needed edited volume addressing the many layers of Gaza, its history, geography, peoples, tragedies, and perhaps most importantly, its capacity for action and resilience. The Gaza of this book is at once an object of inquiry, a territory of devastation, and a site of inspiration. To introduce and discuss the book, I'm pleased to have with me on the phone from New York, Helga Tawil Suri. Together with Dina Mutter, Helga is the co-editor of Gaza as a Metaphor. She is an associate professor of media and culture at NYU and is also the director of the Kevorkian Center for Near Eastern Studies there. Her research interests include such topics as technology, media, culture, territory, and politics in the Middle East and Palestine. She has researched and written numerous articles on Arab media as well as on cultural territorial politics, checkpoints, identification cards, and other material objects. Also with me on the phone are two contributors to the book. From Santa Barbara and Palestine, joining us are Shirin Saikali and Saeed Shadi. Shirin Saikali is an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara and is a historian of capitalism, consumption, and development in the modern Middle East. She is the author of Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine. This book offers a historical and theoretical account of Palestinian businessmen, reformers of the domestic sphere, thinkers and scientists, British colonial practices, while utilizing the lenses of political economy, cultural and gender studies. Saeed Shahadi is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the Social and Behavioral Science Department in Birzeit University, Palestine. His past research examined the application of psychoanalytic theory to the Arab South. He worked as a neuropsychologist at Jamaica Hospital in New York and at St. Jude's Medical Center in Fullerton, California. His clinical and research interests focus in neuropsychology, emotional and physical trauma, resilience, and cross-cultural psychotherapy. Currently based in New York and Ramallah, Saeed is working on a clinical research project regarding Palestinian resilience under colonial occupation. Good to have you all with us. Let me begin with you, Helga. Could you tell us when and how was this book conceived? Thank you, Samara. So let me just sort of take a quick opportunity to say thank you for having us with you for this interview. It's a pleasure to do that and an honor to be interviewed by you as well. In terms of 
the inspiration, if you will, for the book. On the one hand, it was in the moment of the 2014 kind of attacks and the latest so-called war on Gaza of the summer of that year, but it's also a much longer set of inspirations and set of questions and desires. If I can say really one particular note, if you will, that kind of launched it all, it was actually a discussion with a colleague of mine who doesn't work on Palestine, but who often talks about Gaza in these comparative terms, but also very abstract terms, right? So seeing Gaza as somehow a symbol or a metaphor, really, of like an open-air prison, of the ways in which urban warfare, urban control are waged today, an example of lawfare or an example of what racism looks like in this day and age, Gaza as a kind of laboratory, right, as some people have sort of called it. So in a sense, it was this desire to kind of respond to that, but also this desire to explore, well, what is it about Gaza that does function metaphorically, but then also to sort of flip that on its head and instead think of Gaza as a real place and kind of approach it in its realities and think about what is it that Gaza itself, as a real historical and a real territorial site, what does it actually teach us about these different kinds of concepts that sometimes are used to frame Gaza? It was those kinds of questions that kind of led Dina and I to try to put this book together. And so it was, on the one hand, trying to explore these metaphors of political resistance, of neoliberalism, of military technologies, of colonialism, of these humanitarian crises or humanitarian failures, right? But at the same time, a true desire to kind of record, to historicize, to contextualize, and to kind of bring Gaza closer mm-hmm. because of its increasing inaccessibility. Gaza hiding behind a set of misrepresentations, mostly a set of stereotypes, a set of assumptions, and a set of fears. So this goes actually to the book's title, Gaza as a Metaphor. Mm-hmm. Why Gaza as a Metaphor? Why this choice? I think it was in part because Gaza is such a rich site from which to understand many of the conditions of the world today, and I mean sort of political, social, economic kinds of conditions. And so I think that there's purchase, if you will, to using Gaza as a metaphor in these kind of abstract kinds of ways. You say to people the word Gaza and all kinds of terms kind of get conjured up in one's mind. But at the same time, it was that because Gaza as a metaphor is also a play in the sense of Gaza has become increasingly inaccessible and marginalized and misunderstood. So then to portray what the realities of Gaza actually are. Helga, a sense one gets when reading the book is that Gaza continues nevertheless to elude us. Metaphors are what make Gaza accessible, as you say and write in the introduction. But on the other hand, there is excess of metaphors, if you will, describing the fate of Gaza. We have zoos, archives, torture, chambers, cysts, and so on and so forth. What does this excess in metaphors and of metaphors indicate to you? I think it indicates maybe a couple of things. I think it's a beautiful question. On the one hand, it kind of indicates the inaccessibility of Gaza, that it does remain distant and thus able to make us imagine it continuously. So I think in part it's removal from our everyday lives, the impossibility of going to Gaza increasingly and, of course, of coming out of Gaza. 
So there's a way in which its distance is productive of more and more metaphors. It continues to, in a sense, be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. But I think also this whole idea of metaphors is a way of kind of making it more accessible and trying to understand it. So I think that the excess is also because Gaza is in a way very, very rich, and it does have a very complex lived reality, uh, whether we look at it historically or whether we look at it towards the future or whether we look at it in the present term, that Gaza does have so much to say about the conditions of the world today. And again, it's about those conditions, whether it's about violence, whether it's about the military, whether it's about ongoing colonialism, whether it's about poverty, about religion, and all kinds of things. In a sense, it becomes this very rich site, even if it's also a real site. Now, there is a line in your introduction where you speak of Gaza's sheer statistical impossibility. And these are your words. Mm -hmm. I thought these three words, sheer statistical impossibility, captured volumes. Can you explain them? And if you could, maybe you can also relate them to your own essay in the volume, which captures this small, enclosed, suffocated strip on the one hand, but also this large, loud, productive, bountiful, indeed larger than life, as you write, place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there's a number of ways in which Gaza is sort of talked about from the outside and represented, or as I earlier said, sometimes misrepresented. And I think one of the ways in which we sometimes try, whether in the mainstream media or even in academia or in all sorts of other environments, to try to understand is through things like statistics. I feel like it's one of those things in which Gaza is often sort of shrouded in. Like we have all these numbers about how many people are living under poverty lines, how much water is below international quality standards, how little electricity there is, how many people actually live there, what percentage of the population is kids. And there's always these numbers thrown around. And it kind of, on the one hand, gives us a sense of maybe somehow understanding Gaza. But I think on the other hand, it's also both a critique of looking at statistics as a means of trying to understand a lived experience, right? So one of it is statistics don't actually tell us very much about what real life is like. And then the other is that statistics often just sort of hide the historical context, the political context, and the realities. So I think part of it is that, is that, yeah, sure, we can get caught in all the statistics about Gaza, but do we really know any more, specifically when we're sitting on the outside of Gaza, about its lived realities, about its history, about the political conditions, about what has actually made it into the place that it is today. Yes. And Um, indeed, your article does cover and does try to bring to the surface, or to capture, in fact, how big that place is, that it exceeds the statistics that only show enclosure, uh, suffocation, and so on and so forth. Right. And I think that's what drove at least my own piece in that volume, which is, of course, Gaza is one of the smallest confined, dense places on Earth. It does function as an open-air prison of sorts and other kinds of prisons or laboratories or zoos or, again, all these different kind of metaphors. But at the same time, to kind of think about how that in and of itself is actually a productive force, but also how just because something is territorially confined doesn't mean that it is small. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to play with this idea of, on the one hand, look, Gaza is filled with life, is filled with people, 
is filled with experiences, but then also to sort of push that a little further of the extent to which Gaza seeps beyond these territorial confines that it's encumbered in, so that Gaza both as a metaphor, Gaza as a site of study, Gaza as something that we fear sometimes from the outside, Gaza as something that is misunderstood, but really again, to kind of bring it back to what is actually going on within Gaza, of the kinds of experiences and the kinds of lives that are possible given the constraints that face the people that are there. Now, what is truly magnificent about the book is the range of topics included, not to mention also the accessibility of the articles to non-academics. There are 21 articles in three parts. Can you speak about the organization of the book and what it covers? Sure. I think there was a very conscious decision on the part of Dina and I to try to have what we called an eclectic mix of people. We didn't want it to be a mainstream kind of academic book, even though we're both academics, but to precisely make Gaza more accessible through a range of different voices. So people like Saeed, who are doctors and practitioners, people like Shireen, who are academics, but who can also write in a evocative, non-academic way, and then people who are inside of Gaza, journalists, a kind of range of different voices. And so it was really this attempt to try to capture the diversity and that sense of larger-than-lifeness of Gaza. So that was a very conscious effort. In terms of the organization of the book, you know, it's always hard to decide how you're going to put things together, but I think in the end we decided for these four different sections. And on the one hand, it was a section that was mostly focused on what living conditions are like in Gaza, whether in the present or in terms of how they relate to the past. And that's really sort of the first section of the book. The second is, in a sense, about the territory of Gaza itself, but also how that territory was produced, so that the Gaza Strip was not a place that existed beforehand, but is a place that was created in 1948 and continues to be created as such. So a set of articles that deal in part with the history of Gaza, but also with what the territory of Gaza actually looks and feels like in this day and age. The next section, which is called Narrating Gaza, it was really about trying to think about the ways in which Gaza is often violently subjected in narrative or in discursive or in visual forms, so that Gaza is often misunderstood, often misrepresented, often decontextualized and inaccessible in that way as well. The set of essays there kind of deal with Gaza's representation in mainstream media, what kinds of language could we use to think about Gaza with, what kinds of language or discourses could we use to perhaps free Gaza from the set of constraints that it faces. And then the last part is the way in which we kind of saw the set of essays as responding to the question, really, of what does Gaza teach us about the world in which we live in today? So situating Gaza within these larger questions about war, about Zionism, about different sorts of territories, about history in relation to, like if I think of Sarah Roy's piece, in relation to what it means to be children of Holocaust survivors. So Gaza as it intersects with bigger kinds of histories and bigger sorts of questions. 